welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I am your hostess, Pat Rulo. We bring you hand-selected hosts, podcasts, and talk radio programming with listening options, 24-7 streaming or listen on demand. We also feature one-on-one segments with important guests, people who have something to say that you need to hear. And if you have something to say and would like to be featured on the network, please visit speakuptalkradio.com for all of the details or contact us at pr at speakuptalkradio.com. Well, today I have an author with me, someone I have been so interested to meet and share with you. She is Bibiana Kral. Bibiana is a small town girl from the Midwest who left home and traveled the world. She resides with her family in a historic village on the outskirts of Savannah, Georgia. She made a nest, created a family, and built a career with a passion for culture, travel, and private aviation. She earned an MA in fiction and MFA in creative writing from Wilkes University. Bibiana writes novels, poetry, short stories, 25 titles on Amazon and counting, and is currently working on a screenplay adaptation. She is a former international travel expert and luxury insider and has lived the adventurous life she writes about in her novels, highlighting kick-ass female protagonists in plot-driven stories that utilize female empowerment and social narratives. Lots more to find out, folks, so let's get going. Welcome to the network, Bibiana. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and talk with you today. Thank you. Me too. I've really been looking for our conversations. So uh, lots to talk about, especially with 25 books. I'm sure we can make a day of it if we go that route, but I think we probably better just focus on maybe two of your upcoming books, Tangled Webs and Montpelier. So let's begin with Tangled Webs. Now that's a co-authored book, right? It is. Um, uh, basically during the, the first lockdown, a writer that I met on Twitter named Veronica Klein-Barton and I were sort of uh, got closer, became closer friends and started kind of rehashing the things going on in the world. So we were each other's ear and she had this great idea of creating an anthology of scary stories, sort of using some of the things that were scaring us currently. And uh, it turned into this wonderful series called The Haunted Series, and we had our first book come out last year in the fall called Hearthfires, and now this year, on Monday, Labor Day, uh, we have our newest title coming out, which is an anthology called Tangled Webs, and it has six scary stories, some recipes in the back to sort of get you in the festive mood for fall, and oh my gosh, they're just so much fun. She's she's calling it paranormal luxury. It basically is it's go, a lot of ghost stories, kind of spooky, eerie stories, no gore, um, with lots and lots of psychological themes, and it's just so much fun. So much fun. These stories are certainly about um, what the heart wants, about revenge and envy. Um, and the most fabulous part is, is she and I are both world travelers, and we have been missing using our passports. So part of the idea in these anthologies is that each story takes place in a very specific location. So if you've never had the opportunity, for instance, in this collection to travel to Norway, you get to go to Norway. Mm-hmm. And um, all of the stories have their own locale, their own flavor. Uh, we use local culture, folklore, 
and even very specific locations inside of these places, and we've traveled to them. So hopefully the authenticity will be there for someone who resides in the area as well. Now, are each of you writing one of the stories, or are you actually collaborating within each story? Well, actually what we're doing is uh, we come up with basically the feed, the idea of the story, and she has three and I have three, and we individually write three stories apiece. Mm -hmm. And then what we do is we swap and the we send I send my stories to her, she sends hers to me, and we give some pretty um, you know, big sister critique and we go back to the well and we we whittle it down and then at that point if we agree everything's good, then we send it to the editor. Oh my, that's that kind of reminds me of like husband and wife author duos where You've got to be honest, brutally honest with the other person and then right. hoping that you're not going to offend them and that they're not going to offend you and that it doesn't ruin the relationship. That's a tricky, tricky thing to accomplish. Well, you know, with some people, I think it, with a lot of people, it probably would be. But with Veronica, the beauty is, is that Veronica's got her own thing going. I've got my own thing going. So there is a mutual respect there that makes this collaboration so amazing. Mm -hmm. Because I don't have to worry about hurting her feelings. Because when I say something to her, she knows it comes from from me wanting it to be the best possible story and vice versa. Right, right, right. So the key to it really is picking the right person to collaborate with. Oh, oh, yes. <laughs> now, this, a doubt. this is the series that, um, or the books that you're trying to develop into the TV series? That is correct. Yes, I'm flying out to California in October, and she and I are going to sit down. We're going to work on the the log line for the uh, basically main title of the show, and then we're going to try to break it out into segments for what's called a treatment, which is anywhere from one and a half page to four pages, and that's what a potential director, developer or company like Netflix or Amazon Prime will look at to decide whether or not it's right for their network. How exciting is that? Yeah, it's very exciting. Very, very much so. Well, you know, you put so much into that, it would be so thrilling and exciting to see it on the big screen, right? Oh, it really would. <sighs> and these stories, because of the fact that they take place in these beautiful locations, like we have you know, as I said before, we have Norway, we have Aston. One of one of my stories is in the southern part of Italy on the coast. I mean, we have these beautiful atmospheric regions and areas of the world in our stories. So to be able to go in a TV show once a week and literally travel the world and then see these just wild and imaginative stories come to life would be it would be a, one of my dreams, mm -hmm. definitely. Absolutely a dream come true. Well, you'll have to keep us all posted on the progress of that. That's exciting. Thank you. Yes, thank you. All right, well, let's move on to your next novella, Montpelier, book four of the Irish Phantom series. So that sounds intriguing. Give us a little peek into all of that. Well, the, the Irish Phantom series was a, a series I never planned, and... I went to, I've, I've been to Ireland a few times, and the last time I was in Ireland, I ended up staying in this amazing bed and breakfast in this mansion, it used to be owned by one of the uncles that was part of the Guinness family, mm -hmm. 
And this building, this amazing building in the ground, just were so, you know, Edgar Allan Poe slash Rebecca. And I couldn't help but feel it all kind of going into the, you know, into the pores. And one morning when I woke up, I opened up a door in a hallway way upstairs. And there was the most bizarre, I, I don't even know how to describe it. Like you're in a hallway in an enclosed building and I opened up the door and somehow I was on a roof. It was pouring down rain and there were all of these crows, hundreds of crows. And they were all kind of like sort of, you know, dive bombing for me, headed for me, you know, like in the birds. Yes. And I was like, this is bonkers. I got to get out of here. So you know, I closed the door to make sure that these crazy birds couldn't come in from the rain into the hotel and told my husband about it. And he was like, yeah, yeah, you know, you're always your brain. And I was like, yeah, okay. Well, we ended up going with our family a few days later to the West Coast of Ireland. And I had the weirdest experience with a little kid there who kept yelling at the top of his lungs, this is your last chance. <gasps> So this little kid I had never met before in my life named Nigel, who became a character in the the main story, Corvus Hall, was completely beside himself screaming in this restaurant that I had to come home with him and sleep in the little bed under the window. And I was like, this is this is nuts. My family was like, what did you do to that kid? I'm like, nothing. I don't, I have, you know, nothing, really nothing. And this, it was really shocking and upsetting to the point that his parents had to basically potato sack him over the shoulder and carry him out. Oh. And he was probably six or seven years old, just the sweetest little kid. But he was really, really fixated with me going back to his house somewhere in Ireland and living there forever in this little bed under the window. So, um, it, it stuck in my head for a while, and about three years later, I decided that I was just going to start writing and see kind of what happened, mm -hmm. and it ended up becoming three linked novellas, and Montpelier is basically the final answer to the very odd character named Nigel, um, what the, you know, what's really happening in Ireland, which is basically... You know, if you really boil it all down, what's happening is is that the magic of Ireland and the queen or the goddess of all of the magic in Ireland has decided that she wants it back. But she's in a rivalry with her brother, who is also an ancient Celtic god. He's been running rampant, and he's had it all to himself, and she's finally decided that it's time for the girls to have their moments again. So it's really fun because what you have is a very modern landscape with a lot of sort of pseudo-Celtic mythology, but you have a god and a goddess who are brother and sister basically in full-on magic rivalry with each other doing crazy things in Ireland, and everybody sees a nature aspect or a weather aspect, but it's really these two people fighting with each other mm. or these two gods fighting with each other. Oh, wow. This is such a fascinating backstory to this story, too. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, that kid, I'm telling you, I, what a sweetheart, but it was one of the weirdest things that's ever happened to me in a restaurant, for sure, for sure. And you said he was, he was shouting that this is your last chance? Well, I mean, kind of how it started is, is, you know, silly me, I wanted to wash my hands before I ate. So we had been touring, my family, my, my two, my two kids and my husband, and they sat down, you know, I'm, I'm the one who wanted to wash my hands. And so I went in this, the bathroom and I'm just washing up and there was this grandmother, this lovely woman and a little boy. And she was putting his little footed pajamas on. And I was like, oh, how cute, you know, and washed my hands and was getting ready to to leave. And the little boy turned and looked at me and he said, I know you. I'm like, "Uh, I don't think so, kid. You know, I I don't live in Ireland, so I'm pretty sure I don't know you. And the, the grandmother kind of looked at me and I said, I have no idea. I said, you know, he's very sweet. I'm gonna go. <laughs> and she said, well, you know, it's a very long drive you know, back to our house. And I said, really, how far away from here do you live? And she said, at least an hour, at least an hour with traffic. And I was like, oh my gosh, in American standards, that's like nothing. Right. But apparently this little boy had to put his pajamas on to drive the very long way home which was an hour. And I know we were in uh we were in Kilkenny. Kilkenny or Kilbarney, I forget the name of the, the town, but but anyway, um, you know, I said, Okay, well, you know, nice to meet you, yada yada and went back to the table, sat down with the fam and we ordered and she and and this little boy came out of the bathroom and he sees me. His eyes light up again. He beelines it straight for me like grabs my arm, you know, I'm sitting at the table and he looks at me again and he says, I know you. And I'm like, okay, kid, this is getting weird. You know, like you're sweet, but this is really getting weird. And he was maybe, you know, kindergarten, first grade, you know, wasn't, if he was a grown man, I would have really probably dealt with this whole thing a lot differently. Sure. But, <laughs> um, but, you know, I was just trying to be like, ha ha. Okay. Uh, you know, and I said, no, I don't think so. You should go sit down, you know. So he, he did. And, you know, we were eating dinner. It shows up again <laughs> at the table. And I'm like, <laughs> and, and I mean, nothing, there wasn't anything unusual about him as far as, like, how he was in other ways. Right. right. So, I mean, this, this kid was convinced, 100% convinced he knew me. And he was trying to get through to me because apparently I have like a bad memory or something. And, you know, so he said it again. But when I, I said, I'm sorry, I don't know you. He got angry and yelled at me that it was my last chance. And he's saying this in, a, in an Irish accent, this lovely, you know, Irish accent. This is your last chance, you know, it was like oh. that. And, and um, it was like, last chance for what? And he said, you have to you have to come home with me and sleep in the little bed under the window. And my family's like, what? Oh. You know, and his parents were mortified. You know, they, I think they were really embarrassed by what was going on. But I was just like, you know, what is happening? Yes. And finally, I mean, he, this, this poor soul was so agitated that he refused to let go of my arm. And his father came and peeled his hand off my arm and put him over his shoulder and took this kid out of the restaurant. And it's the last time I ever saw him. 
Oh, so, wow. So, you know, there's obvi- there obviously was some connection that he recognized perhaps that you didn't or that th- there's something more going on there. Yeah, you know, it, and it, it sort of, it stayed kind of that program, like going through it over and over yes. sort of stayed in my mind the whole time we were in Ireland. And then we went um, on an airplane after that and we were in London for a while and then we were in Scotland for a while. So as I'm in these really kind of sometimes remote places and walking or whatever, I kept thinking about Mm -hmm. this extremely unusual child. But the one thing that that just never left me was how absolutely 100% convinced he was that I had to do this and that he knew me. Oh, Oh, I wish you knew who he was. You can go back and give him some copies of your books because maybe that's what it was, you know, just an inspiration for you. There's so much more that could be known here that perhaps we'll never know. But what a stunning story and what an amazing uh, beginnings for your book. I mean, it it certainly certainly just sort of germinated in my mind. Yes. when I wrote Nigel as a character, you know, I used his real name. I have no idea his last name. And, you know, he, he was so little. I mean, he's still, you know, probably 10, 11 years old. I made Nigel very sort of startling mm-hmm. and, and a little bit um, awkward and strange because there was never a moment with this child that I ever felt like this harmonious thing. Yes. It was always just it almost felt like he was compelled with every drop of blood in his body that he had to convince me. And, and I was just this person who didn't get it. Oh my. Fascinated by this. Absolutely <laughs> fascinated by it. Cause I, I hope that someday maybe you go back to that little town and try to find all the Nigels that might be 10 years old and see if we could figure this out. Cause I'm, I'm interested. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm interested too. And I, I think because it was so upsetting to everybody. I mean, even the patrons in the restaurant were like, you know, what yeah. is going on? Oh my gosh. You know, it's like, what does chick do to this kid? Like, I didn't touch him and grandma was always with him. Yes. So, but um, I think other people were really upset. They were, you know, everyone just had a giant question mark over the top of their heads. Yeah. And my family ribbed me about it the whole time. They're like, you, it's your last chance, you know, and I'm like, you know, you guys leave off with you. You know, I didn't ask for it, but on the other hand, I am grateful that whatever it was that connected this little boy and I somehow for that moment, that it turned into this huge, creative, Mm -hmm. really interesting journey into historical aspects of Ireland, some of the mythology and the magic of Ireland. I mean, it it really, it always has that aspect, I think, because of those crazy birds Mm -hmm. and because of Nigel's absolute uh, empowered feeling that he and I, at some point, had known each other so well that he wanted to just take me away from everybody and to spend time with me alone because I was, I I don't know. I mean, it's, it's certainly mysterious. Absolutely. We may never know, but... um... Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's going to give me something to think about for a long while. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, as you're speaking, I'm I'm thinking about all the books that you've written and the fact that you do like to write in multiple 
genres. I was going to ask why, but I would imagine that just through the sheer amount of traveling, that that is so inspiring in so many different directions that you couldn't stick with one genre. Well, actually, I think I think the real reason I write in multiple genres is, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, but there was no such thing really as genre until the early 1900s. Before that, it was either nonfiction or fiction. Mm -hmm. There was really nothing in between. And genres, are, to me, are a tool to market. They're a tool to find your audience. And they're very important, obviously, because you don't want to write romance and then try to get horror readers to read romance because it, it obviously would disconnect. But the multi-genre for me is because one of the smartest writers I've ever met who also uh, helped me go back to grad school five years ago um, was having kind of a moment. And I won't mention this person's name, um, but this person is, I mean, just such an exceptional writer, such an exceptional person. And they, they've been successful. I mean, so successful in their book writing. And they were having a moment. And I saw them having a moment and said, you know, why, what's going on? And they write these super thrilling maritime sort of naval kind of things, what I would consider man fiction. And I know I probably shouldn't say that, but that's what I, <laughs> how I sort of see it. You know, it always has like the battleship on the cover and, right. you know, everybody in it is strong and, you know, that kind of thing. Well, uh, he had put out more of a coming of age story about uh, some friends in, I think it was in Pennsylvania or something like that. Nobody wanted to read it. Nobody. And I mean, we're talking about somebody who's got 45 USA Today best bestsellers under under their belt, maybe more. You know, somebody who's just so exceptionally talented and mm -hmm. successful that it's hard to imagine this person not having every person read even like a scrap of paper they drop on the floor. And uh, they so so it made me think about how I wanted to present storytelling. And right now, I'm actually, today, I'm querying a mystery story, a, a mystery with a traditional agent. And that traditional agent, I'm 100% sure, is going to want me to stay in the mystery lane. And so what I'm thinking is that as an indie right now, or at least a hybrid, that in my indie side of the world, that's like my color wheel, and I get to wear all the cool accessories, and I can punk rock my hair, or I can wear pearls if I want. <laughs> but in the traditional side, because it is so difficult to market, and because it does cost a lot more money on the traditional side and investment to, to put those titles out, you know, I may have to do a pen name on the traditional side and stay in the mystery lane in that aspect if that's how it, it works out. But for me, the entire point of writing, the entire point of doing something creative is to be free. And if I have to stay within a very, very small microcosmic box, then I'm really not doing anything different than what I did when I worked in corporate America and worked in a 
a small little gray 10 by 10 square with no daylight. Right. And I don't want to do that. So I'm making an artistic and a business choice as far as the multi-genre for sure. Being creative isn't just about writing. Being creative is about like exploring and imagining in your mind, setting your soul on fire and just going wherever you want to go. And if you have limits on that, then you're really not doing that. What you're doing is saying, well, I can only go this far and then I have to stop because that's where it's safe. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound fun to me. You know, I talk to people a lot about this, is even if you're writing, we'll say, a romance story, your romance story, unless it has some elements of suspense or unless it has some elements of mystery or comedy or something else in it, it's really kind of flat. So I don't think you necessarily have to say, you know, it's only mystery, but I do think it's important to incorporate elements of what are considered genres or subgenres into your writing mm -hmm. with a light enough hand that you don't upset readers in the expectation of the genre. But I think you have to, you got to give it some, you know, some blood. And if it's just everybody's happy and everybody's eating cotton candy, I mean, how long can we do that? Is <laughs> no. that a whole book? Not real. Right. Yeah. It's a scene. It's a fabulous, wonderful, we get to escape from reality scene. Mm -hmm. But if it's the whole entire book and there's never any struggle or there's never any challenge to get over other than the fact that you forgot your wallet in your car, <laughs> you know, we're done here. <laughs> So true. That was some good advice right there. Thank you for saying Thank that. You. Thinking about um, how you gather the creativity and the imagination, I know that you use or you think that the use of creating vision boards is interesting or a possibility. I've not talked about that with anyone before, so maybe before we wrap up later today, we can talk about that. What are your thoughts on vision boards? Well, I think um, I think there's two kinds of vision boards. There's the private vision boards, and then there's the public vision boards. The private vision boards are much more important. I mean, back in the day day, before there was Pinterest or these fabulous sites where you could get free photographs and make collages and all of that, people would get Vogue magazine or they would get National Geographic and they would cut out the pictures that they really liked and sort of put them on a you know, a large whiteboard and just put it on the wall because it was your dream trip or your your dream house or whatever it is. But um, I do digital vision boards um, to save trees and also because of the fact that I change my mind a lot about what my vision is as I'm going through the process. And um, most of the time I keep the really powerful ones private. And the reason I do that is because one of the most important aspects of creating something new, creating something that really is original. And I know people say, oh, there's nothing original left in the world. Well, it's because they don't know me. And, you know, hopefully someday they will, and I can, I can defy that, that logic or lack of logic. But um, what's really important is at the inception of the creative process with vision boards especially, is not to share with anyone. And I'm talking about your lover, your husband, your best friend, your gardener, anybody. 
because what it is, is it's a private conversation between you and your muse or your imagination, however you want to look at it. And that conversation needs to be like this sort of all enveloping love story. And the love story, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's a comedy or maybe it's science fiction, but love story in the sense that you're completely immersed in that world. And when you immerse in that world, you're kind of free to float and, and, and decide on characters or decide on, on theme or even colors that bring emotions for you. But if you share it, what happens is, is it's really weird. It's almost like you have a little hole in the bucket. And some of those really powerful things that you need to have to be able to have the endurance to write a whole novel starts kind of trickling away. And you feel sort of a little bit of an imposter, maybe, or you feel like, oh, maybe it's just that's not a good idea because the person didn't get excited enough. You were bouncing it off. So I think it's really, really important at the inception of these vision boards to keep them completely private to yourself. Let it do whatever it's going to do. You know, look at it, put visuals on there that are helping you get to where you want to go and go right. And then when you feel confident after you've drafted the first draft, so that could be five years from now or that could be three months from now, depending on how fast you write, um, then you can share it and you can also keep modifying that vision board to sort of, you know, meet that level of energy that you're looking for. Because what it will do is when your, your plot is sagging, which it will. I mean, every plot always has, sometimes you subplot to the point where you're at your neighbor's baking cookies and you, okay, you know, bring it back in. And sometimes that vision board will do that for you because you'll look at it and you'll say, well, how can we do all of this if we want to do this? So you have to sort of pull out what's really important and what's going to get you to the end of the story faster. And sometimes the visual will do that for you when words on a page just sort of blur into the oblivion of, oh, my gosh, how am I going to do this? Mm -hmm. But a photograph or a video um, can sometimes really bring you back to home just like that. I agree with everything you said. I think that visual, and even even after then you've, you've posted that or you've put it wherever you have it, whether it's on your wall or your computer, and then you leave and you're doing something else, not even thinking about it, it's still there. That visual is still there in your oh, mind, yeah. and it's still working. It's still doing its job to kind of tickle your creativity. And I so agree mm -hmm. with the suggestion not to share it. Um, it seems like once you share s certain things... I don't even know the word to explain it. It's like it's gone. Um, it's not yeah. spe as special yeah, it, anymore. It, it just sort of it becomes a vapor mm -hmm. instead of it being three-dimensional and really powerful and strong and grabbing you by the shoulders. Mm -hmm. It sort of ghosts you a little bit. Yep. No, I understand that. Absolutely. Oh, this yeah. is great. I think this will be some excellent advice for the authors listening to us. Bibiana, I knew we could probably spend the whole day um, chatting. There's just so much more I want to talk about, but maybe we'll have to schedule another time before we start to wrap up. What's next? What are you working on now? I know you've got the TV series, but is there anything that you're working on right now? Another book? Um, well, I always am. Yes. I mean, there, there is a, a pet project 
said I'm calling my manifesto, so I'm considering it my most important book of my life. We'll see if that if if we stay in that lane. But but uh, the reason it's so important is it talks about technology, um, it talks about climate, and it also talks about um, sort of uh, social justice and a lot of other things, but it does it in a way that it's not throwing it on your head and mm-hmm. making you scream and, you know, run for the door. What it's doing instead is it's, it's giving a narrative from viewpoints of people that you might know or that you might connect to or you might even see as yourself. So um, it's basically a, a misfit, misfit story, and the misfit story is sort of a turnaround in the idea that the misfit is the, the only person who's left standing, hmm. a person who, who, who everybody made fun of, who nobody thought could do anything or go anywhere, is the person who actually may be the solution. Uh-huh. You know, because if you look at the world we live in, the person who's going around banging on their chest saying, I have the solution, well, I'm still waiting. Uh-huh. So I think it's the people who are quiet and the people that are not being noticed that are thinking the most. And that person, whoever that person is, wherever they are, is the person potentially with the solution. So, you know, there's there's a lot going on in this book right now, and I'm not sure where it's going to go, but I have applied for a residency in Switzerland to, and, you know, who knows if I'll get it or not, but... I would spend a month on top of an elk in a glass tree house. And that's where I'm hoping to um, not only really dig deeper into this, but to hopefully finish the first draft. Oh. Oh, my gosh. I love you and your sense of adventure. This is so exciting. I hope that happens for you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited. I actually tried to choose the month because they let you choose when you can come. I tried to choose a month that would be very sort of um, seasonal change, Mm -hmm. like when the snow is still there and then it melts, because I'm hoping that that change and that sort of how nature moves through this alpine environment will give me ideas on how I can talk about humans moving through those environments, mm-hmm. too. Wow. Well, again, keep us posted, and uh, I hope that uh, hope that turns out, because I think that would be so inspiring for you. I'm knocking on wood right now. I heard Thank the you. knock. Okay, that's good. All right, well, we're going to begin to wrap up. Anything we missed that you wanted to talk about? Um, no, just uh, I wanted to say to everybody who has been supporting, you know, the the Haunted series and Tangled Webs. I'm just so grateful. I'm grateful to everyone who supports what I'm trying to accomplish. And I hope if you, you know, you want to spend some Halloween time with myself and Veronica Klein-Barton, that you'll go check out Tangled Webs. It's all over the place. And, or you can just go to my website and check it out there. All right. And your website is? BibianaCrawl.com and it's B-I-B-I-A-N-A K as in King R-A-L-L dot com Alright, Bibiana Crawl This has been such an intriguing and fascinating conversation on so many levels. I feel like saying this is your last chance <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> I just felt, I just got a tingle <laughs> 
You're the best. I appreciate this. I appreciate this so much. It was really great to be able to talk about the creative life. Thank you so much. We'll do it again. Perfect. Thank you.